Hello, and welcome to the first ever episode of Turning Data into Dollars, where we ask industry experts to share insights into how to best use your most valuable asset, your data. With an abundance of disparate data sources from social media, email, purchase, digital marketing, research, and more, we help you connect the dots to develop customer engagement strategies that drive sales. Why should you care or listen to us? The reason is simple. At InterQ, we know what it takes to influence consumer behavior and create evangelists for your brand. We've focused our entire business on it. Now, let's get to the show. I'm Nicole DeVault, Marketing Director at InterQ and your host for today's podcast. I'm here today with my guest, Jason Sisley, President and Head of Strategy at Denna Aviary, a key strategic partner with InterQ. I'm so happy to have you on the podcast today, Jason. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Nicole. Much appreciated. Jason is back. He actually presented a webinar on behalf of InterQ last week on the implications that COVID-19 is having on email deliverability and some tips to combat the current deliverability issues many marketers are facing. The response and the questions we received after that webinar was overwhelming. So I'm so glad to have Jason on the podcast today to answer some of these outstanding questions and continue the deliverability conversation. But before we get too detailed, Jason, can you give listeners a brief overview of what email deliverability is? Yeah, sure thing, Nicole. Um, yeah, so, you know, in short, email deliverability, it's, it's the ability to get your emails into your subscribers' inboxes. Um, you know, more so deliverability monitoring. It, it's the marketer's ability to measure whether this is happening and, and be able to dive deeper into the root of any issues that might be impacting the health of your program. So really, when we're, when we're talking about deliverability monitoring, really what we're monitoring for is your overall sender reputation, um, you know, which, which it kind of gives you a little more detail about your, your overall program. But then we're kind of also tracking individual things like spam traps, blacklists, overall engagement for your email program, and, and things like that that could, that could ultimately impact your deliverability those aren't the only factors, but I would call those probably the minimum tracking signals that senders should focus on. Um, so yeah, ultimately, you know, deliverability, it's the ability to get into the inbox, but we really want to couple that with deliverability monitoring. Makes sense. Um, I know that deliverability is sometimes measured or always measured as a percentage of emails getting into the inbox. Is there a number that email marketers should strive for? Is 90% considered good? Should we strive for 100%? Yeah, you know, it's it, the way that I always look at it is, I mean, we're, of course, we're always striving for 100%. 100% is, is typically very difficult because when you're, when you're truly monitoring your deliverability, you're, you're monitoring each of the ESP, or sorry, the ISPs uh, or the domains, Hotmail, Yahoo, et cetera. Um, individually. So also consider that you're monitoring all the really small ones or the ones that make up a very small percentage of your list. So even if you're having issues with smaller domains, it, it, you know, it's ultimately going to impact deliverability or that percentage. So, so yeah, we, we do strive for 100%, but you know, it's, it's, it's really important to measure all of the smaller ones too. So typically I strive for a 95 and above, and of course, that really depends on the makeup of your, your list. So Jason, you mentioned when you were describing email deliverability, you mentioned two things. You mentioned blacklisting and spam traps. Uh, this brings me into questions from the audience. We did have a couple questions about what exactly blacklisting is and what you can do about it. 
I'll let you answer that. And then I'll move on to how do spam traps work and how do I avoid them? Sure, absolutely. So it's what, what is really important to, to know about blacklists is not all blacklists are created equal. Um, you know, there, there are lots of different severities of, of blacklists and their ability to impact your, your email program. So, you know, the basic way to think about how you would get on a blacklist is blacklists are, you know, they're, they're lists that are created by either email vendors, so some of the ESPs, the service providers, some of the ISPs you know, manage them as well as, as large network providers. So a lot of the B2B filters, um, you know, create their own, their own blacklists. And, and the reason that you might get on one or another is because they are monitoring your program. And if, if you are doing things that, you know, maybe upset their base or they're seeing a lot of, um, a lot of complaints, you know, from your particular program, you could end up on one of those blacklists. But like I said, it's really important to kind of know the difference between a really severe one and one that's really not going to do much damage. And, and there's, there's a, a relatively simple way to figure that out. And, and just so you know, there's no real way to just know off the top of your head what all the blacklists are because there are literally thousands of them. So, you know, using a service like MX Toolbox, which is one that we use, and, and you know, it's, it, they have a free part of the tool, they have a paid part of the tool, but one of the free parts of their tool is the ability to go in and check to see if there are any blacklists. And typically what you're going to need to provide is your IP address uh, for your program, especially if you're using a private IP versus a shared IP or you can also use your, your domain that you send from. So your emails, when you send them, whatever the domain uh, for that email address is, uh, you'd want to plug that in and, and check to see if there's any blacklist. And typically what it'll tell you is what the severity is. And you, I would use that to make a determination about how deep you want to get into resolution. Jason, what would those resolution steps look like if someone uses a tool like mxtoolbox.com and they find themselves on a blacklist? What should they do about it? So the biggest way that you would ultimately get off of a blacklist if, if there is this opportunity is to whitelist or, or uh, submit a whitelist request. And that is also done through the site. So as an example, if you land on a spam cop blacklist, which is one of the more severe ones, Ultimately, you'd, you'd want to go to the spam cop website and, and fill out a, a whitelist request form. And typically what it's going to ask you for is your role with the organization, um, you know, your IP address. And then there's going to be an open text field that's just going to have you explain a little bit about your program. And that's where you really want to be very transparent about, about the use of your program because they're going to use that information to ultimately determine whether you can get off of that blacklist or not. Right. So, so you do recommend reaching out directly to each individual blacklist that you may land on? Sure. Yeah. And, and, you know, and generally, you know, you don't, again, you don't have to remember what all the blacklists are, but I do encourage, you know, those that are, that are interested in monitoring for this behavior, which everybody should, in, in my mind, um, is using a tool like MX Toolbox or just even, you know, in Google, just type in blacklist search, um, you know, or, or just different tools. There's a lot of different tools out there. But, um, but in, in general, what you're going to do is when you put in your IP address and it does that search to see if you're on any blacklist, 
it's going to provide you the URL or the details of that blacklist so that you can go to their site, kind of read the criteria for which they, they make that determination that you should be on their blacklist. And again, that is just always really good information to, to know and use in, in order to optimize your program. But then that will give you the ability to, to kind of start that dialogue with that blacklist providers. So, um, so yeah, I, you know, I mentioned MX Toolbox, but I don't think that's the only one that you should consider. I mean, find the one that, that makes most sense to you. And, and MX Toolbox is one that we use internally at Den Aviary. Um, however, there are a lot of them out there that will help you look up if, if you are on any blacklists. And I would encourage you to check that at least once a week at, at minimum. I was wondering as a marketer, you know, everyone is so busy at this time dealing with the implications of COVID-19 and trying to keep, keep businesses running. So checking that weekly is what you would recommend. This isn't something that I need to go in and check every single day. Not, you know, I wouldn't necessarily recommend tracking it every day unless you just find yourself with a lot of extra spare time. So it's, um, it, you know, it just is one of those things where, you know, there's a lot, especially during times like this, that is out of our control, right? So there are a lot of factors that we just have very little control over in terms of things that are putting us at a little more risk for deliverability issues, like lower engagement, of your emails, you know, just not as much site traffic in general. So you're not, you're not collecting new subscribers as, as fast as we once did. So, you know, the things that are well within our control, like the ability to stay off blacklists and, and monitor that and at least mitigate it when it does come up, I would highly recommend that that's where we spend our time at this point. And, you know, those other factors are a little more out of our control. That makes sense. Have you discovered in your experience a way to set up maybe an alert that would alert email marketers when their email deliverability drops below 95%? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, there, there are a few different tools that we really like a lot, you know, that do that. For the most part, they're going to be paid versions of the tool. MX Toolbox is, is again, you know, one of those that it doesn't only provide blacklist checks, but it provides a lot of other email deliverability services that, that you can subscribe to. So, you know, a blacklist check may be a, a free tool that they, they offer, but if you do want to set up alerts where it's automatically going out and checking, you know, on a frequency that, that you would like it to, that's where you're going to get into the paid side of it. We use 250OK at Dead Aviary in addition to MX Toolbox. And 250OK is, is um, you know, one of the larger competitors in the space for email deliverability monitoring. I would encourage you know, customers that have the ability to, to bring in a paid service like 250OK or Return Path or even the paid version of MX Toolbox to go that route because it really does take a lot of the guesswork off of your plate and, mm -hmm. and in terms of being able to set up, you know, the, the alerts and just alert you when something happens um, or even set up custom alerts to, to notify you before something happens is just a really good idea. I do like that. So we mentioned spam traps a few times. I want to go back to that. Can you explain a little bit about how spam traps work and how email marketers can avoid them? Sure, absolutely. So, you know, with, with spam traps, um, you know, there's, there's um, 
you know, I mentioned with blacklist as well that they're, they come in different shapes and sizes, and that's the same for spam traps too. So there are, are three different types of spam traps that you could end up on. And one thing I would mention is that, you know, regardless of, of how, how well you maintain your program, how well you maintain your database, um, it's it's likely that you are going to have some spam traps at some point or another within your, your base. So the key is minimizing that number. And typically the way that I like to, to look at it is per 1 million email addresses that you have in your base, I like the number of spam traps to be below 10 on a daily basis. So we typically will track over a seven day period the number of spam traps that you hit divided by that number of days, so divided by seven days, and what is that daily average? So, like I said, a, a million um, sends in a week, um, you know, it, uh, with, with 10 spam traps or fewer is really not a problem, but when you get over that number, then it becomes a bit problematic. But then again, it's also, it kind of depends on which spam traps you're hitting. Typo traps are are for the most part the ones that I don't consider to be that big of a deal. But again, you, you just want to make sure that you're controlling the number of them that you're hitting. So a good way to think of what a typo trap is, is it's literally a typo. So if somebody enters your database with the email address, you know, at gmial.com versus gmail.com, that's going to be a typo trap. And really what, what the, the ISPs are looking for at that point is, do you have real-time validation? Are you checking you know, when users subscribe for common misspellings or validating email addresses in real time? So again, you know, that's a very difficult um, you know, thing to really ding senders for because you know, those, those just happen because people fat finger their email address all the time. So mm -hmm. the, again, the key is making sure that you don't have too many of those. And, and really what's happening here is that the ISPs for the most part are the ones that are signing up for your program or have automated programs that are injecting new email addresses that use those common misspellings. So it's really only reported when you have one of those within your, your system. Recycled traps, those are the ones that, that you really want to be cautious of because recycled traps are always going to come about simply because you've got old customers or old users within your database that haven't engaged within your program in a while. The way that recycled uh, spam traps become spam traps is that they are literally readopted by the ISP because somebody has abandoned their email address. So if you've got an old Hotmail account or you know an old email address somewhere that you haven't logged into in a long time, you've sort of forgotten about it, you're likely going to get an email at some point from that service provider letting you know that if you don't log in, they're, they're going to shut off your account. So what they'll do is they'll ultimately shut that email address off after a certain point, and typically that point is in nine months. Um, after nine months, generally what they will do is they will, you know, have it shut off for a, a short period of time, in which case your, your ESP should be bouncing that email address out if you are still trying to mail it because it is now an in inactive email address. But then at some point what will happen is the, the ISP, the, the domain, will re-enable that address as a spam trap. 
So the best way to solve recycled spam traps is do not mail to customers that have not engaged within your program in the last nine months at maximum. The last one are pristine spam traps. These are, these are generally a little more rare to get onto, but if you're seeing that there are pristine spam traps within your, your base, um, typically those come from ISPs placing email addresses or other services placing email addresses specifically on, on like public sites. And, and these are also called honeypots. And the reason that they're important is because there are a lot of people and customers that purchase third-party lists or go out and buy databases. And, and typically some of those services you will find have gone you, and use scrapers to scrape you know, email addresses off of public sites in order to create a large database and then sell that data. And that's generally how you end up on those pristine lists. So you really do want to make sure that, you know, from a pristine spam trap standpoint that you don't have any. And, and if you do have some in there, you probably want to, you know, go through your database and just sort of validate all the sources of sign up, you know, historically, just to make sure that you're clear on where your subscribers are coming from. So those are really the three different types that exist and they all tell you a little bit you know, about your program. And, and unfortunately, the one way to really check for spam traps is to use one of those services like 250OK or ReturnPath. There's just not another really good source for doing that because it, that information comes through in real time. So it really does take a program that is monitoring for real time activity. That makes sense. I do want to jump into some of the information that you shared on your webinar last week about what's going on in the world today. You talked a little bit about COVID-19 and the impact that it's having on email deliverability. And we did get a lot of questions from listeners regarding that topic. They wanted to know, should I be making big changes to my email strategy to adjust for this time of crisis? Should I be pulling back? I'm not sure if I should be sending emails at, emails at all. So what have you seen uh, at this time that has changed in regards to email deliverability or email strategy in general? Sure. Yeah, you know, and this, this really goes to just the way that we treat our, our email programs at any time, you know, much, much less a, a time of crisis when there's a lot of change that's happening. So the ISPs have become really, really good about, about you know, indexing our programs and really understanding the way that you mail, the frequency at which you mail, the types of customers that you mail, and how your customers engage and interact with your, your program. Um, you know, so, and, and the reason they do that is ultimately they want to protect their own customers and make sure that, that when you are sending, that you're sending relevant communications to, to your customers, which are also their customers. So it's important to note that when you make big changes all at once, it's sort of disrupting the system a bit because they've, they've taken a lot, a, a lot of effort to, to really understand the way that you are communicating with your customers. So if you make a big, broad change, you're going to ultimately get their attention. And you want to make sure that if you are making changes, that those changes are going to impact your program in a positive way. So the, the answer to the question, should I be making big changes? Should I change my frequency? Should I be mailing at all? It, the answer really is maybe to all of those because it really depends on what you were doing before and really consider all of the changes that you might make to your program as being relative to what you've done in the past. 
So if you're, if you're planning on making a big change from a frequency standpoint, I'd highly recommend that you ramp down into that, that new tactic so that you're not just making it you know, from one day to the next. So uh, a big change would be I'm sending 500,000 emails to customers um, you know, every single three days before you know, we, we wanted to make this change. And then the next week, you know, when you decide to make this change, you're, you're only sending one email you know, that week. That's a big change that's going to get the years to perk up of, of the ISPs because now all of a sudden you've disrupted their system and they're not clear as to what your change is. So ultimately, you know, a good way to think about it is when you're doing IP warming for your program, you're, you're really ramping up your volume over time to ensure that you're, you're developing a good reputation on your IP address. Kind of think of this as the reverse of that. It, when you want to make a big change that's going to impact your volume, and I'm talking about large changes, not necessarily small changes that are you know, 10% or less, but bigger changes that are going to have a broader impact, you really want to work your way into those changes kind of slowly, so over the course of weeks and not days. So you may want to consider, you know, instead of just going to your new plan immediately, kind of, you know, change the volume slightly and, and do it every couple of days uh, while you're going through that change until you can settle on what that ultimate change is. But then another really important factor here is that, you know, ultimately we are going to come out of this at some point and we're going to want to start to mail our full database again or mail to, to our engaged customers. It's important that we not make a big change on the on the upside of that as well. So you're going to want to ramp up your volume again. So just as you ramped it down for this big change that you're making for for your total volume over a given week, you're going to want to ramp it up uh, on the other side of it to make sure that you're not doing damage and, and causing issues with deliverability. Yes, and you mentioned that you should ramp up and down over the course of several weeks. Is that three weeks, six weeks? What's your typical uh, time period that you would recommend making big changes over? I'm sure it depends on the, the size of the change, but is yeah. there a general best practice? Yeah, you know, it's, uh, unfortunately, there's not a general best practice, there's, but, but the guidance that I have with that is it really depends on the volume. And, and volume is ultimately what we're talking about here. So I always consider a rolling seven-day period. So, you know, yesterday was a seven-day period. Today is another seven-day period, you know. So I always think of, of volume in terms of, of a seven-day period. So I would look at, you know, when you're planning for the content and for your emails that are going out, look at the changes that you're going through over a seven-day period and make sure that you're really only making you know, what I, I might consider 10% changes over the course of, of a day, you know, at, at, at maximum. And, and the biggest factor in all of this is that we don't want to sacrifice volume for engagement. So you want to make sure that that engagement still remains on your email program because there is one surefire way to resolve deliverability issues always, and that is engagement. The higher the engagement is on your emails, the much better your, your deliverability is going to be in total. And I always think of it in terms of, 
you know, engagement is, is ultimately what's going to be able to work you out of issues with deliverability. So always consider that you can, you, you can sort of, you know, impact, even if you're having, you know, negative changes to your program that are going to be these big volume fluctuations, you're going to have less issue doing that as long as you can maintain a really solid and increased engagement on your email program. So I would typically always start with your most engaged customers when you are making big changes. In your experience with your clients in the past couple of weeks, have you noticed any any difference in engaged customers or how they're considering what an engaged customer is at this time? I know email behavior and shopping behavior has changed over the last several weeks. Uh, how do you consider engagement at this time? And is, is it any different than engagement was two months ago? Yeah, you know, it, it really is different than it was uh, e even a couple of months ago because, you know, there there is a natural and organic pullback from from email programs. You know, people are looking at at the email they receive with with heightened scrutiny at this point. So obviously, you know, this is this is also driven very much by industry at this point. We have some customers that are continuing to do business and, and some customers that are in fact you know, they, they're, they're doing more business at mm -hmm. this point because of, you know, their e-commerce platform and, and, and the types of products that they sell. But then we also have customers that, you know, are trying to find ways to communicate with their customers in a creative way because their products are, are products that are just not available right now, whether it's concert tickets or mm -hmm. hotel rooms. Um, you know, it, it, it really depends, you know, industry-wise, um, you know, what we're seeing in terms of engagement as a whole. But one thing, you know, that, that is definitely true across the board is we do need to be a little extra cautious right now about what we consider an unengaged customer. And I would really encourage you, if you, if you in the past have tracked the way or your, your group of customers that has become less engaged with you, you might want to consider you know, hide or in some way flagging them differently in your database for those customers that have now become unengaged, you know, just over the last two months or so. And the reason I think that's really important is because we, we want to consider taking different tactics as we're coming out of this and not treating all unengaged customers the same. Obviously, you had unengaged customers before the, the slowdown or before you know, things really started to, to go haywire. So, you know, we want to make sure that we are communicating differently to those customers versus customers that just naturally aren't engaging with you during this time. And the way that I always think of unengaged or less engaged customers is, you know, you, you ultimately, you don't want to keep hitting them with email after email after email because it just becomes nagging at some point and you're sort of begging them to unsubscribe or, or complain about your program. So consider, you know, your, your industry, consider your product, consider your, your place in society right now as a determining factor about the frequency. What is a, a, a decent frequency, which we are not going to, you know, ultimately make all of our customers upset, you know, that are less engaged with us during this time. I'm glad that we're talking so much about engagement right now and sending out relevant messaging and really focusing on your engaged customers. 
I know that I personally have received several emails that I thought, you know, what's the strategy behind this? I know I received an email from, I'm not going to say the company, but a pet supply retailer that I think I bought dog food from maybe two years ago, one time. And I recently received an email about what they're doing about COVID-19 and the safety in their stores. And I thought, well, I've actually never been in your store. So how is this really relevant? And I unsubscribed. And as a marketer, I was thinking, wouldn't it have been so much better to send me a welcome back? We're doing curbside pickup for your convenience or something like that. I just know that I've been unsubscribing from emails um, at an alarming rate. And everything that I'm reading on the internet right now, I've seen tons of complaints about email programs. Um, Personally, I'm a country music fan. I follow Casey Musgraves on Twitter and she tweeted, I'm calling her out here, but she tweeted about a month ago. She said, Corona has really made me realize how many corporate emails I need to unsubscribe from. And I know a lot of us are feeling the same way right now. Yeah, no. And and I I agree with that. I mean, we're seeing it, you know, all over the place. So, um, you know, I've done the same. I mean, I'm, you know, kind of looking at my inbox with a little more scrutiny than I have in the past. And one thing that I'm realizing is that brands that I used to be, um, you know, really passionate about at one point or another have become tone deaf during this time. And, mm-hmm. you know, they, they, you know, I always think of, of email programs and, and I know that this is an old, old thing with an email, but, you know, it's a conversation and, and it's our fault if we don't listen to the other side of that conversation. So, you know, email is our ability to talk directly to all of our customers, every customer that we want to talk to that has signed up for our program. We can, we can broadcast to them at one single time. But it's our fault if we don't listen to what they're saying. And what they're saying, is, it comes through across as engagement. Mm-hmm. If they're not engaging with you, they're not, they're not having that conversation. They're not participating in it with you. So if you really think of it in terms of somebody that's talking to you, standing right in front of you and, and having a conversation and not letting you get one single word in, that's a lot what, uh, of what a non-engaged customer is dealing with every time you send them another email that is not relevant to them. So it's, um, you know, it's really important, especially during this time, that we are, we're, we're kind of opening our ears even a little more than we have in the past and looking at an email address as an individual customer, not a list as a group of customers that we are communicating to at one time. And, and, you know, just one, one thing that I think is, is sort of, you know, something that I constantly think of is, you know, in the email world, you know, 20% open rates are considered good open rates, you know, and even increase that to 50% are great open rates. But that means that 50% of your customers are not opening that email. And, and it's important that you're reacting to that. So we may look at a 50% open rate and go, oh my God, everything's working. This is great. I'm going to keep doing this. That's great. But what about that other 50% that's not doing anything? It's important that we're constantly looking at our group of less engaged customers and, and you know, changing our program to benefit them. You know, we talked in the webinar about creating brand equity. That's not our place right now. We're not going to create new loyal customers, um, you know, in, in large, um, you know, bulk, uh, you know, uh, you know, groups of customers at this time in any way. I mean, you, you could have customers that get a little more engaged with you, but for the most part, it's going to be very forced if you're trying to get new customers 
um, you know, that haven't talked to you in a while or haven't done business with you in a while or haven't engaged with your program. So don't pretend like they're going to right now just because you've got something to say. Make sure that it's ultimately relevant to everybody in your email base. I like that. I'm glad you mentioned segmentation and the different types of messaging. And I think we should probably do a follow-up podcast on different ways to segment your email list and some of those strategies for those less engaged customers. Absolutely. I agree. Awesome. Well, we are about out of time for today's podcast. I just want to make sure there, is there anything else you would like to add any key takeaways or key email deliverability points at this time that you'd like to leave our listeners? Yeah, you know, the, the only thing that, uh, you know, I'll kind of mention is, you know, this, and this is more in summary, is just, you know, be, you know, just as your customers are going to scrutinize your program, you know, more than they have in the past at this point, um, you, you should do the same as marketers, you know, really scrutinize your, your program, scrutinize your, your segmentation strategy, scrutinize your frequency at which you're emailing your customers and, and use this as a learning opportunity as we come out of this. The other thing, you know, that I, I would like to, to mention is, you know, deliverability. I, I can't understate, you know, how, how imp- or overstate how important it is that we're, we're really paying attention to what's going on right now. So I would encourage you to, if, if you're not using a email deliverability service, to, to look into them. So 250OK is the one that we use internally at the Aviary um, for our customers. But there's also Return Path is another one that very good technology in an MX toolbox. You know, there are a lot of tools that are out there that you can sort of cobble together to create a really good deliverability monitoring program. So depending on the level of resources that you have at your disposal, um, you can either go the route of a all-in-one vendor, you can go the route of an agency like Den Aviary or InterQ, or you can go the route of cobbling together a bunch of different services, which I, I've done in the past and it, it's worked great. So consider this a time to educate yourselves and, and learn more about the impact that deliverability um, issues can have on your program but really ultimately look at this as a learning opportunity for the way that you should communicate with your customers always, not just during a time of crisis. Those are great key takeaways. Thank you, Jason. And thank you for being on the podcast today, sharing your expertise on email deliverability. We really appreciate it. Sure thing. My pleasure, Nicole. I do appreciate it. And for listeners, if you have further questions, you can click on the links to the contact information for Den Aviary or InterQ in the podcast description fill out the contact form and we'd be happy to assist you. I also want to leave a brief note. I know that we spoke a bit lightheartedly about COVID-19 today. I do want to mention that our thoughts go out to those struggling with COVID-19 and we do thank our essential workers and are thinking of those whose businesses may be struggling at this time. And again, we're here to help in any way that we can. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time on Turning Data into Dollars.